Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, back again. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. Uh, it's, it's been a while. It's been so long. Uh, wh- what happened? I mean, in, it's been a month. Uh, Donald Trump is the president-elect. Jackie Chan has a Lifetime Achievement Oscar. So do those things, like, balance themselves out in your eyes? Or? Not quite. Uh, <laughs> Fidel Castro died. Like, the whole, like we're returning to an entirely different world. Just a blasted wasteland. Why were we away for so long? Well, I basically went on a trip to Austin. I had a lot of laundry to do, so <laughs> that kind of kept me occupied you as well. You washed your hair. <laughs> yeah. I also went to Vancouver. I went to... Mostly just video stores. You went to Scarecrow Video. I did. It's amazing. It's giant. It has basically every movie you ever wanted. And when I mentioned that to the uh, guy behind the counter, he went, yeah, I guess I don't really think about how great this place is until someone reminds me. That's sad. Yeah, that's really sad. You don't know what you got till it's gone. (laughs) So I burned it down to the ground. (laughs) You visited Bruce Lee's grave? I did visit Bruce Lee's grave. Not as um, ornamental as I thought it was going to be. You didn't have to, like, go up several levels of a pagoda and fight people (laughs) to get to Bruce Lee's grave? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, are you still here? He's like, yeah, that's what I do on my days off. But listen, you know, it's been a hard month for everyone, I think, and we're back to heal a weary nation. People kept, like, refreshing the iTunes page, hoping a new episode would Drop. You know, we've emerged from Bane's Hell Pit, and we're back. We have not emerged we're ba- from Bane's Hell Pit. We're back in Gotham <laughs> to. to <laughs> hey, it's uh, wait, the Lazarus Pit in the Dark Knight Rises, isn't that what it's called? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah, who knows? I call it Bane's Hell Pit. <laughs> So the Bane that, like, works for Poison Ivy, right? Like, oh, yeah, Bane, yeah. Like, giant. I, we'll, we'll get to the main topic, but, you know, my favorite part of Bane's Hellpit in that movie is, A, how well it's lit, and B, the fact that it looks like Frank Lloyd Wright designed it. Yeah. Like, yeah. So we're going to be talking about Christopher Nolan and Dark Knight Rises. Oh, I wish. <laughs> no, we're going to be talking about Kelly Reichardt, a director who I've always known her movies, never watched any, because they looked depressing and slow. And as someone who just likes explosions and fun, I was like, nope, not for me. Yeah, well, me as the intellectual of the duo, I, of course, had seen several of her films as they came out. But revisiting some of them and uh, watching one that I'd never seen before for this podcast, I think really underlined uh, what a good filmmaker she is. A better filmmaker than, in fact, I had ever even realized. So she hasn't actually made that many films, at least feature-length ones. I believe she made about six. And she has a curious career trajectory where she made one in the 90s and then disappeared for a long time and then returned. And is now sort of an art house darling, but also the movie that she has out now, Certain Women, is actually the first of her movies to make over a million dollars. And so her first film, River of Grass, I'm sure she would hate this comparison, but it kind of lives in that post-Tarantino world of like... Two people who want to be petty criminals, but in this case, they're just losers and nothing works for them until it all just comes crumbling down. And you didn't watch this movie, right? No, but you, uh, I've seen you know most of her ones after that. Later on, she develops this style that's very minimalist, uh, very... Well, I want to say sensual, but not in a sexual way. I mean, sensual in the sense that like the sounds and the images are very kind of subtle, but but overpowering. River of Grass has inklings of that, but the thing that kind of separates it from her other movies is that it's very overtly comical like it's trying to be funny Mm -hmm. in ways that wendy and lucy and old joy are not specifically there's like cutaways at one point someone loses their gun and then you see a montage of how he like puts his gun on thing drops his gun 
et cetera, et cetera, which is something that would not repeat itself in her later cinema. I saw a bit of an interview with her where she was talking about this movie and she said that she was constantly fighting with the DP about, uh, you know, trying to shoot it her way. And the movie, she thinks, was very derivative of Terrence Malick. Mm. uh, Like Badlands Yeah, yeah, early Terrence Malick because since she was so inexperienced, she almost needed to like sell her director of photography on a precedent for what she wanted to do. So I don't know, based on what I saw of the interview, she didn't seem to speak all that fondly of the movie. The movie did do one thing, which is started a relationship with Larry Fezzedin, who plays her co-star in the movie and is a director and producer in his own right. He made films like Habit and Wendigo. And he he appears in a lot of like low budget horror movies too. Yeah, he uh, kind of fosters new voices and um, a funny story about that is that after River of Grass, Kelly Reichardt barely worked. There was, a I believe, a 15-year gap between River of Grass and her next movie, Old Joy. Mm-hmm. And in that time, she actually became an assistant professor at a film school where she met a young Ty West. And she put him in contact with Larry Fezzedin, which then led to a fruitful relationship between Ty West, director of House of the Devil. The Innkeepers? The Innkeepers, yeah. yeah. And... She still continued to work with Larry Fezzedin because he appears in her movie, Wendy and Lucy. I think of all the filmmakers that we've done on this podcast, this is maybe the one who I know the least about her just as a, as a person, which I kind of like in a way. I feel like all I need to know about her really I get in the movies. Which is, she's sad. She's lovely. <laughs> she sees the world as one of decay. Yeah, but I don't know. I find her films like... I, I, if I can get like really earnest here, just for this podcast, I watched Old Joy, which I'd never seen before, and I watched Wendy and Lucy and Meeks Cut Off, which I had seen before. But they seem just so like wise about the way that people are and the way that people relate to each other. And none of them are very eventful at all, but it's all in kind of like the subtle, small ways that people behave to each other it, that just reveals so much about them. So that's like a reflection of minimalism, right? Because we don't usually do minimalist films on here. We usually do the big bombastic ones, the ones that we like, the classics. Sure, because, like, look, we're not being paid for this. We want to we be easy. We want to have the fun stuff. But something that I really notice is especially something like Wendy and Lucy and Old Joy, which it is so minimalistic that you're kind of watching and projecting your own feelings on what's going on especially Wendy Lucy and the very sad part at the end involving a dog because mm-hmm. the story is about a girl and a dog that gets stranded in a small town the girl loses her dog and then she looks for it that is the entire movie and it's clear that she's homeless and yeah. that she's maybe running from something mm-hmm. um and everybody in the town kind of knows what's going on there but nobody wants to say anything about it but old joy was really her comeback movie yes and the movie that set her up for the career that she has right now uh i hadn't i'd never seen this movie before this is i mean among the least eventful films that you can get but still have a, a narrative it's these two guys there's Kurt, who's sort of like an aging hippie who likes to go on weird mountain retreats and talks about what a great philosopher he is. And there's Mark, who was his childhood friend and who has settled into a life of domesticity. One weekend, Kurt calls Mark and says, hey, let's go to the mountains and find a hot spring. But Mark, he's got a pregnant wife at home, so he has to kind of like you know, wrangle his way out. Finangle uh, it. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing about, like, Kelly's movies, right? We're on a first-name basis now. <laughs> yeah. Is Just that... like my friend Marty Scorsese. <laughs> yeah. Is that 
they're not about the big events, and if you're waiting for those events to happen, you'll usually be pretty disappointed. Mm-hmm. Most indie movies, especially something like Old Joy, you'd be like, when is one of them going to murder the other one? Mm-hmm. Or like, when, the, when is a horrible secret going to come out? And that never happens, and that's the core of those movies, right? Because you're watching, it's so subtle, and you get so engrossed in it that, like you said, every little moment means something. So in Old Joy, it's these two guys who, you know, love each other. They're old friends, but their friendship has essentially outlived its usefulness. And the whole weekend, it almost seems like this, like, forced thing. They're, like, trying to force themselves to still have chemistry and to still have a good time with each other, but it's not really working and they can't admit it to each other. And I feel like everybody, like, can relate so to that. friends like that, Will? To... I feel like I have over the years. You know, people... I don't know. I feel like I feel like everyone does. I feel like friendships oftentimes are very kind of, like, finite things or fragile things. It depends on, like, the context that you have that friendship in. When the contact is, is removed... Yeah, some... like high school or college. Yeah, I remember yeah. when I moved to a small town... Um, just once or twice, I called up my old friends and we just hang, hung out once. And it was like, okay, mm-hmm. like that's it. Like, I guess we're just not going to hang out anymore. It's a weird thing that it's like, why are we still hanging out, right? Right. And you know, you but can... you still love that person in a way, right? Sure. Like, like you, you I still like have them. a shared. Hi- yeah, maybe love is overstating <laughs> yeah. it, but but you have a shared history with that person, and you feel very fondly towards them, and it feels, you know sad to cut that friendship off oh no i just just slice <laughs> them right off and never think of them again <laughs> oh man yeah. get ready for it will <laughs> i mean sorry like i guess i'm the guy in this podcast who feels more deeply i think we've already clarified that that <laughs> even though you have the sarcastic ironic uh, disposition it's clearly just a defense mechanism because <laughs> you're just soft and, and warm on the inside while my boisterous smiling personality hides a cold heart exterior <laughs> that does not care about anybody else I would say that out of all the movies I watch, and Old Joy, I think, uh, suffers for me because it's the last of her films that I watched. Okay. Um, is that it's the one that I like the least out of all of her pictures. Well, first of all, it's like 70 minutes long, so... I know, but I have to point out, one of the reasons that I left for the two weeks uh, that we didn't, or three or four weeks, we didn't do this podcast, is I made a movie on the road with my friend Matthew, mm. which basically is Old Joy. Like, shot out the window and shot... I actually thought of you, too, when I was watching this film, yeah. Um, I don't appear in it, but it's definitely, like, that kind of thing about friendship and, like, he's moving away, far away. And we actually had moments of, like, walking down the street just talking the entire way. But unlike Old Joy, we were still friends when we left. The way you describe this movie you're making with Matthew, it sounds kind of like the brown bunny. (laughs) Yes, Uh, it is. Lots of shots looking out the windows. Presumably it ends with Matthew getting a blowjob. For me? (laughs) I don't know. I cannot make that promise. But, like... The closest thing to a big dramatic moment in Old Joy is about halfway through when they're uh, sitting around the fire and Kurt starts getting really emotional and saying, man, you know, we, we I want us to be better friends. We used to be such great friends. Well, there's something between us now. And Mark says, uh, what do you mean? We're, we're still great. And then Kurt immediately drops it. Like you think it's going to build to something, but it doesn't. And then it's never addressed again for the rest of the movie. It's just... But we remember that it happened, and I feel like... It kind of colors everything after Yeah, and there's also this kind of sense that, like, that encounter was a turning point, and they could have addressed it at that point, but but because they didn't, like... It will always linger in the air, and it will never get back to that. Yeah, it seals the fact that the friendship is over. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also like just quiet moments, like, we see the two of them at a diner, 
and, you know, Mark goes outside to talk to his wife on the phone. And there's this little moment when Kurt clearly tries to flirt with the waitress, but she's just not buying it. (laughs) And it's kind of the most pitiful flirting you've seen. It just adds to our understanding that uh, he's a bit of a loser. All of Kelly Reichardt's movies are about losers, right? Not one of them deals with a winner (laughs) or someone that usually has to make a journey. Usually they're all crawling toward a point below from where we start with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's really interesting about the films and the story she feels that she needs to tell, especially Wendy and Lucy, which uh, came after Old Joy, because Old Joy gave her a little bit of clout, right? Mm -hmm. So it stars Michelle Williams, who had been on stuff like Dawson's Creek and things like that. And also by this time, I think it was like a pretty well-established film Mm -hmm. actress. And she plays a woman that lives out of her car with her dog, and like we said before, is running away to Alaska to get a job in the fisheries. And we hear her on the phone with, is it her father at one point? Uh, It's her sister's husband. Ah, right, right. So clearly there is a support network somewhere that she's running away from. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, the whole movie is she gets caught shoplifting at a grocery store. When she comes back later in the day, having been uh, released from prison, the dog that she tied up outside the grocery store is away, and the the movie is her looking for the dog. I actually uh, read an interview with uh, Kelly Reichardt, and she said that the basis she started from this movie was was after Hurricane Katrina and like people lost their homes and stuff like that. She considered it of what happens when you live basically paycheck to paycheck with what you have, and an accident just takes that away. Mm-hmm. And in this specific case, she imagined that the Wendy character like her home burnt down, and now she had nothing. So where does she go from that point on? Mm -hmm. And like, what decisions does she have to make? And the movie is also kind of this series of just little encounters she has with people, the most important of which is the security guard who lets her use his phone. And they say almost nothing of consequence to each other, but it's just the way that he looks at her and the, the very small acts of kindness he provides to her, which stand in contrast to somebody like... The, oh, the guy in the grocery store Yeah, the snot, the snotty teenager at the grocery store who clearly, I mean, you know, you can understand why he would do it. He wants to impress his boss, yeah. uh, but he does, he does it at the expense of catching this homeless woman. Yeah, like the his boss is basically like... You know, we're probably just going to let her go. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter that much. But the kid will not let up. He's like, we need to make an example of her. Yeah. Like, this is protocol. And she even goes, like, why are you making an example of me? Like, I'm not from around here. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter. He wants her to be punished. (laughs) And I love that after that, there's a moment where she's walking by the grocery store looking for a dog. And the kid leaves and goes and gets in the car with his mom. Yeah. Where she's like, I lost my dog now. Yeah. I hope you feel happy. Yeah. And he's like, well, she shouldn't own a dog if she can't feed it. This movie also gave me ample opportunity to consider Michelle Williams' face, which I think is an, a particularly good face for film. Like, there's she played so- Marilyn Monroe in a movie. I mean, I'm kind of amazed at how um, how much range her face has, like uh, the, the depth of feeling it can convey. We've seen movies where she's very like bubbly, like My Week with Marilyn. And then there's this one where she has this particular forlorn look in her face, a very subtle forlorn look the whole time. There's something so hypnotic about the way that the film is directed. I went in with incorrect notions about the way that Kelly Reichardt made movies. I assume they were mumblecore style films, like very handheld, 
kind of John Cassavetes-ish, but mm-hmm. that's not it at all. Yeah. They're very controlled in the way they're capturing the image. But at the same time, like, it's very clear what she thinks of her characters, yes. right? E- even though there's a lot of room for nuance and there's a lot of room for us to project our own feelings onto it, like, her presence, I think, is felt very strongly in them. Because mm-hmm. she has a particular point of view, right, which is being reflected over and over and over again in all the films she makes. And I think that comes a lot because she's adapting the work of Jonathan Raymond, which she did for four movies straight. So mm-hmm. Old Joy, Wendy and Lucy, uh, Meek's Cutoff, and Night Moves were all written with the same guy. Mm-hmm. And I think that his voice really comes out in the films as well. And it's like them working together that make these portraits of sad, lonely, lost people mm-hmm. like throughout. I haven't seen her new movie, Certain Women, which is the first film not uh, co-written with Jonathan Raymond, uh, since River of Grass, but I'm really interested to see where she goes with those characters. And also, I just want to point out, certain women does not have a distributor in Canada. That's insane. Yeah, I like don't know. It's, it stars a bunch of like famous people. Kristen Stewart yeah. is in it. Laura Dern. Yeah, I don't know. Like if you look online, it says like UK release date, and like that's it. Everything gets distributed in Canada. Come on. <laughs> Where's E1 to pick this up? Yeah. And put it in, like, just dump. Movie yeah, theaters? dump it in the Carlton for a week. I remember when a Meek's Cutoff came out, which is a movie about settlers going down the or. Oregon Trail, mm-hmm. and they're just lost, and that's the entire movie. Mm-hmm. So, but they're but they're being led by this guy named Meek, yeah. a, a bearded settler, played uh, by uh, Bruce Greenwood, and it's literally just them wandering through the desert looking for water or mm-hmm. somewhere that they can call home. And Meek is kind of a braggart, kind of a show-off, uh, really thinks he knows his stuff, but clearly he just leads them astray. You know, I, I know that I've I read a quote from her saying that the parallels with George Bush and the Iraq War are 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 are, are, are there. Uh, I guess I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't I although, that at all. although, what I will say is that, like, his character, I think, is um, an example of a certain kind of figure who often comes to power, which is the really self-assured, uh, simple-minded bra- braggart. Yeah. <laughs> And he, they realize pretty quickly, though, that they have no idea where they are. Because the movie begins in a way that they barely give you an introduction to the characters. You have to figure it out as you're going along mm-hmm. and things are presented to you. But the movie is very much seen from the view, from the point of view of the women who are on the trip, the wives. Uh, I know this movie has been called a feminist Western. There are so many scenes where we see these three wives as the men are off in the distance having a conversation about what the strategy is. And, you know, clearly the men are just like totally idiots yeah i have uh, no idea what's going on yeah but but even so the wives are simply not part of it but what ends up happening is that the crux of the movie surrounds them capturing a um, native american mm-hmm. and kind of forcing him to go along with them and the decision that they make concerning him is like basically the climax of the mm-hmm. film but we also see how the women I guess, assert what measure of power they can assert throughout the film. So at one point we see Michelle Williams uh, fixing um, Meek's boot, saying, I hate it as much as you do, but I want him to owe me something. And what did you think of the film being shot in the Academy ratio, like four by three? I I mean, I think it looks beautiful. I I don't, uh, I'm not sure what it means exactly. I actually read an interview with Reichardt and she said that she wanted to be able to capture their bonnets in frame. Oh. So she wanted to shoot it four by three instead of the usual kind of, when you shoot a Western, right? You want to see the whole landscape. So you shoot it like uh-huh. anamorphic uh, 235. But something else I thought about the four by three frame is that it's also a very claustrophobic frame. Yeah. What you get is these figures in a landscape that feels very closed off mm-hmm. because they have nowhere to go, right? Even though mm-hmm. that everything is presented before them. I like the way the landscape looks in this movie. I mean, it's, 
it's very beautiful in a, in a stark way. Uh, but I mean, compared to like the John Ford landscape, like there's something so glorious about the way John Ford shoots the West. But in this, the, the landscape looks just so punishing uh, and it looks so overwhelming in a way. Yeah, it looks like it goes on forever and there will never be any solution, which is a frustrating part that people have with the movie that I was ready when I was watching it. How, what was your reaction? when the? Because the film, it ends, but it doesn't really end. It ends right? very abruptly, yeah. yeah. Where you're like, oh, I guess that's it. <laughs> well, I like the ending very much because, uh, you know, maybe uh, skip this if you haven't seen it, but... We're basically led to believe that this Native American is going to lead them somewhere, and he doesn't. Yeah. Like, there's no communication between the Native American and these guys, which I feel like is kind of the only way the movie could end. Yeah, like, if they reach water at the end or something like that, you would have been like, ugh. Yeah. Or if you watch them all die, like in Gus Van Sant's Jerry, they <laughs> walk out in the desert and just die of dehydration. Mm-hmm. And then there's Night Moves, which is her big Hollywood picture. I saw that when it came out. I didn't revisit for this, but that's the one that, to me, even though it's like very much one of her films, it feels the most conventional. Yeah, it, it has a three act structure, mm, you know. And absolutely. It, it also has some big stars in it. It stars such uh, Hollywood luminaries as Jesse Eisenberg, Dakota Fanning, Peter Sasgard. Yeah, Alia Shawkat from Arrested Development. <laughs> yeah, playing a character named Surprise, <laughs> and it's a story of. A lonely young man who's lost, <laughs> like a lot of uh, characters in her filmography, who um, lives on a commune and decides as a group of people to blow up a hydroelectric dam. And Peter Sarsgaard is kind of the charismatic leader of this group, very much like Meek, one of her long line of like uh, blustering, uh, self-assured, idiotic male figures. <laughs> Something that I really enjoy about her filmography is how subjective her filmmaking always is. Yeah. You you see it in Wendy and Lucy because it's always following Wendy. Like you never usually go to any other characters except for her. You see it in Night Moves where it's always following Jesse Eisenberg because there's all this stuff happening around him, but you never go see what any other character is doing. You always see it from his perspective. Mm-hmm. What did you think about the plot line of, like, they're going to blow up a hydroelectric dam? Well, I mean, the, the movie is the most conventional of her plots in that it, like... It feels like there's a three-act structure, but I mean, you know, it's, it's not really conventional by any other standard. What I like about the movie is that it really feels like this long, slow-motion car crash where, like, just from the opening scene, you basically know this is not going to work out there's for no them. Way. And with, with each passing scene, it becomes clearer that, like, the law is moving in on this. There's no escape from this. And, like, it's just these, like, dumb kids, basically. <laughs> Doing it for, as one character states in the movie no particular reason just as like theater to make themselves feel important like they did something yeah because you can see jesse eisenberg is kind of lost in the place that he lives and he needs to define himself by one thing Mm -hmm. and the thing i like the most is that it's a procedural for half the movie then it becomes like a paranoid thriller for the next half also it has one of my favorite scenes in a recent movie which is when jesse eisenberg's father basically figures out what's going on and he says to him look i don't know what's happened but Staying here means aiding and abetting for us. And then the way Jesse Eisenberg reacts to it, which is like not admitting any wrongdoing, but all, and like almost trying to show like how cool he is, how above this conversation he is, but also basically conceding his own guilt. I, don't, I thought it was a masterful little bit of acting. Yeah, well, so are you a Jesse Eisenberg fan? Because he always gets trampled on. I, li- I like Jesse Eisenberg. Just Michael Sarah. <laughs> Uh, well, I think uh, Jesse Eisenberg has been good in lots of stuff. I think we have to give it up to him at this point. No, yeah, I really yeah. like him. Yeah. And, like, he does 
one particular set of skills very well. Yeah. And while Michael Sarah lost to the Sands of Time. I think it's, yeah, too bad. <laughs> too bad for Michael Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've thrown away my Michael Sarah fan club card. Yeah. My, uh, my DVD of, uh, Youth and Revolts. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I actually thought, I'm like, what is that movie where he plays a different I, character? I almost said Youth Without Youth. <laughs> I actually kind of liked that movie when it came out. Youth and Revolt? Yeah. I, I remember, remember sitting in the theater and being like, Man, I can't wait to see Michael Sarah play two roles. It kind of felt to me like the ultimate Michael Sarah film. <laughs> it was the one that was the deconstruction of the Michael Sarah persona. We're so, getting far from uh, night moves at this point. <laughs> but I mean, like we said, that it's because it's her most conventional film, it can either be the most satisfying one or the one that you find least emotionally involving. I don't know. I, I guess it depends what you want from a movie. Uh, what, what do you want, Will? Do you want, uh, oh, do you want to feel? You want to laugh? You, you know, I you know some explosions, some boobs. Uh, <laughs> I, I kept waiting for the explosion to happen in this movie. I'm going to blow up that dam. Never see it. What a waste of time. I guess I'm Turn just the movie off. I guess I'm just curious where she goes from here. Like, does she keep going in this sort of like more mainstream direction, or does she? return to the sort of minimalist thing. I well, don't know. I feel like Night Moves, which features a great performance by James LeGroe, I haven't seen that guy in a long time, <laughs> as the guy who sells manure to Dakota Fanning. Oh, yes, yes. It, it's still audiences that, like, stumble upon it on Netflix, I'm sure, like, ugh, what's this? Yeah. Two stars out of ten. I want a funny Jesse Eisenberg movie. <laughs> Give me more of that, you know, solving crimes with magic stuff. <laughs> Um, I don't know. It, it's, you know, we, it's funny that uh, people were talking about how women um, shouldn't be given the reins to direct like big budget. Who says this? Kathleen Kennedy said that she would love to hire a female director for Star Wars, but not enough of them have experience. Oh, man. I, I, I'm really sorry I heard that. <laughs> Can you imagine if Kelly Reichardt was <laughs> hired to do a Star Wars film? Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but at the same time, like, I don't I don't want her to direct a Star Wars movie. No, I, I, <laughs> like, I like, don't. Like, I, I also, I feel like when it, when people talk about this thing about, um, you know, gender parity in blockbuster filmmaking, I feel like, yes, if they're going to make blockbusters, we should have more women directing them. At the same time, I don't like the blockbusters. I would rather see people directing, like, good movies. <laughs> what if the women made the blockbusters good great fine <laughs> you're like Cass like and kennedy you don't feel they have enough experience yeah. i know what you mean the weird thing of taking any directors and putting them in blockbuster scenarios where just producers <laughs> driving everything anyways so. like i realize that's kind of like you know in our capitalist society like you're supposed to like work your way up the ladder and make bigger and bigger movies and uh with bigger and bigger budgets but i mean i don't know i would rather see movies that are good the thing that's really uh, fascinated by Kelly Reichardt's career is that she did have that 15-year gap. Yeah. Like, she made a movie. It played at Sundance. It may not have been, like, super well-loved, but it's good. It actually got released um, recently, a remastered version mm. that they did a Kickstarter for. But, like, Old Joy is... You can tell the movie she had to put together herself. Yeah, and none of her movies have been successful. Like she, she's somebody who has relied on the patronage of people like Larry Fessenden, or like she, she won a MacArthur grant at one point. And it's you know we were talking about the capitalist society is you know should she be punished for not making movies that make money? Like, well, I, I certainly don't think that. No, <laughs> it would be amazing if you came out and you were like, yes, good movies are the ones that make money. That that's why the best movie of last year was Minions. <laughs> 
<laughs> I remember someone on my Facebook once wrote, it's not about there not being enough women directors. It's about, you know, if women make good work, it just go to the top of the oh, pile. Oh, my God. And Matthew Kumar, my co-host on Loose Cannons, was like, ha, 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 fuck you. <laughs> and the guy wrote a giant paragraph in response. Yeah. And Matthew's like, I'm not responding to that. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So next week, this is one that I had to lobby for because... <laughs> Because Justin didn't want to do it, but uh, it's somebody who's been on my mind lately. It's uh, Mr. Warren Beatty, Mm -hmm. director of the smash hit new film, Rules Don't Apply. A film that uh, opened at number 11 at the box office, opened in 2,000 screens. Had like a $600 per screen average. Will Sloan uh, aided and abetted that per screen average. I was there uh, on, on opening night, yes. Uh, me and my friend were there in a totally empty theater, which has almost never happened to me, and has all- certainly never happened on opening weekend of a film. <laughs> and uh, we'll be watching the films he directed, probably yeah. Dick Tracy, Reds, Heaven Can Wait. You're not excited. Why? Why don't you want to do Warren Beatty? I don't know. I think, like, I think Warren Beatty is so interesting. He's like, I'm not a huge fan of him or anything, but he's just like you have such fervor for him though you're like foaming at the mouth well you know he's just a guy who like his career is interesting the fact that he's made relatively few movies but was so you know was and is so famous he's like the godfather of hollywood and he's just a guy who's like been there for a huge huge amount of hollywood history i mean he was in bonnie and clyde he was in mccabe and mrs miller yeah, I guess. I mean, he was in uh, fucking Bullworth, for God's sake. Maybe after I, re- I, I, I read um, Easy Riders, Raging Bull, I was like, I've had enough of Warren Beatty. You know what this is? It's sexual jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> because Warren Beatty's such a um... such a Casanova. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then when I look at him, I'm like, I could never be him. <laughs> yeah. And that was so. Me so down. that's what we'll do next week. We'll tear him down. <laughs> okay. Well, I actually forgot that we have letters. Oh my God. So, we actually have two letters, and the first one goes, Hi, chaps. That's us. I'm almost all caught up. Just writing you a wee letter. This is not a wee letter. It's super long. (laughs) (laughs) To say that I've listened to your response to my Godard question, episode 44, and Will Sloan gave exactly the semantic quibble that I'd expect Godard would use himself. I I don't think so. I think you gave a pretty good answer. I'm trying to remember. This was that letter about About the Holocaust. Yeah. God, sorry. Listen, it's very heavy stuff. Uh, Will said that the Holocaust wasn't filmed in action, but the aftermath was. I'm glad that Will agrees that's bollocks because the power of the footage that exists is quite enough, thank you. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I won't make this a regular thing, but I want to discuss your Nicholas Winding Refn episode, number 30. Okay. I have to say, personally, this is Justin speaking, probably got us our one-star review on iTunes. Oh, you think Nicholas Winding Refn himself? No, uh... no, no, that someone listened and was so angry. I think we had, okay, we yeah. had nice things to say, We though. did have nice things, yeah. but we were not... Uh, We're not f- huge fans. Huge fans. No. The letter writer says, because he's the director that I consider just as frustrating as you guys. Um, okay. Wait, okay. Let me break this down a little bit. <laughs> now, is he saying he believes that Nicholas Winding Refn is a frustrating director? Or does he find us as frustrating as Nicholas And in Winding the same... Refn? Are we frustrating in the same way as him? <laughs> like we're all style, no substance? <laughs> Uh, I know this letter is from Matthew Kumar. Uh, oh, our, that explains it, of course. <laughs> my co-host from Loose Cannons. And he does have, like, give and take reference. He's not, like, a super fan, but he loves some of his movies a lot. Okay. And he goes on to say, I couldn't help but notice, however, that in your discussion of his early work, you kind of go, he made Pusher and then mumbled two sequels mumble. 
I can't help but feel any discussion of Refn is incomplete without talking about Pusher 2 and 3, which easily his most deep and complete works and two of my favorite films ever. Yes, really, Pusher 2 in particularly is interesting because it's about fatherhood and failure and was made at the time Fear X had failed and he was a new parent and bankrupt. If you watch the documentary Gambler, you see a portrait of uh, him actually being a very thoughtful filmmaker, struggling to make a reflective piece of art. It's interesting because since the success of Drive, he seems to have devolved into an actual moron. <laughs> anyway, at least watch Pusher 2 to see him at his best. Lots of love, your pal Matthew. All right, thanks, Matthew. Are you... Matthew, I, I just have to say, listen, we do a new director every week. We cannot watch all of their films. Yeah. Unla- un- we should set up a Patreon account. <laughs> to pay us yeah. full time to watch And then movie. we can quit our jobs and just Here, like... Here's the thing. We at once have to take firm stances where we don't, uh, you know, like waffle. Like we're like, mm, I think it means Wait, this. wait, Justin, you know what? I think uh, he Matthew raises some very good points mm. and I think that he's keeping us honest. Okay, and then we should do another ref in episode. Oh, God, kill me. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather it. jump out your window, but yeah, fine. <laughs> Thank you for your letter. Okay, and you have another letter, you yes. said? Yes, so uh, th- this letter is from Andrew Barr. Okay. Another, uh, I think he's written letters before to us. Okay. Here goes. So, the Friday the 13th episode got me thinking. Do you think there's anything interesting about the fact that over the course of Friday the 13th series, the victim ratio is split 60-40 men over women, even though it seems to have a reputation of mostly killing women? The ratio is the same through The Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, at least from the first up to Massacre. I don't know what that means. I never got around to figuring out the child's play or any other lesser known slasher movies. That's all, Andrew. I think that's an interesting point, and it, it definitely deserves consideration. I think the the reputation that the series has for sexism probably stems from the fact that many of the people die uh, right after having sex, and also the way in which the women are killed. Oftentimes, you know, nude or um, lingering in the afterglow or wanting to have sex or, yeah, the, 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 and also the fact that oftentimes those movies end with a final girl who is... Uh, depicted as being sort of, uh, I don't want to say androgynous, but um, virginal in some way, and more more of a tomboy than the other more feminine girls. Yeah, like slasher movies are always sexualized on a feminine slant, right? No one's ever like, man, I didn't like that slasher movie. Didn't have enough blood or dicks. Yeah. Like, that is that has never been said ever. Yeah. It's always blood and boobs. That's what people want from slasher films. Yeah. So whether more men are being killed or not, it's the female presence that you know, they're more... The ones who are killed are often more sexual. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thanks for the letter, Andrew. And I guess that's it. Yeah. We didn't follow format, we just broke it. You know what? As I learned from Warren Beatty this week, the rules don't apply. <laughs> I'm Will Sloan. <laughs> thanks for listening. I just read one of the best film biographies that I've ever come across in the last, like, decade. And it was of Sidney J. Fury, a director that I only associated with cheap films made in the 90s and the 2000s, and Superman for The Quest for Peace. Yes. Uh, I was pretty astonished when I looked at his IMDb page. I mean, all the, like, the Icarus file is probably the most well-known, but some of the, and, and of course, Superman 4, but... Lady Sings the Blues was nominated for a whole bunch of Oscars. Yes, so. and some other kind of prestigious movies from back in the day, but now... Um, like in the last decade, he's done a bunch of like Dolph Lundgren movies, and he he did My Five Wives with Rodney Dangerfield. Well, what you realize reading the book is that C.J. Fury 
is a Canadian who made two films in Canada, these kind of teenage pictures about um, kids who are not understood and want to find their place in the world. And he actually said, I want to bring a Canadian film industry to Canada. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what he wanted to do. And what ended up happening was the two films he made got no distribution, were fairly middling reviewed, but got picked up in the UK and put on double bills with the kitchen sink pictures they were making in the 60s. So he just moved to the UK and started move making movies there. Hmm. And, like, he never came back to Canada until well past his prime, where he just started making pictures like, like you said, the Dolph Lundgren thing and other stuff. He he just made a movie that's like a parody of The Expendables. I, I don't know. It's not called The Deplorables, but it's, it's called so- The Dependables. Okay. And it stars um, Bo Svensson. <laughs> oh, I love Bo Svensson. Margaret Kidder. Yeah, yeah. Just and- all sorts of people that you would see in a Frank D'Angelo movie. And the thing reading about this Sidney J. Fury book is that you don't realize sometimes the kind of breadth of a person's career where, like, he was the Hollywood new wave at a certain point. Mm. He made films with Robert Redford uh, that was very close to Tulane Blacktop, which I can't remember the title of now. It's like the name of two people. Sure. He made a Marlon Brando film. Uh, the the Appaloosa. Appaloosa, yeah. yeah. And um, he made these movies that were just on the cusp of success, but always got kind of mixed reviews until a certain point, the straw broke the camel's back, and he's like, I guess I'm going to make Rodney Dangerfield's uh, Ladybugs. I just can't believe that, like, he's somebody who, like, he ought to be a hack at a higher level at this point. Like, he like considered, like, better. Like, he ought to be making at least, like, hacky studio movies. Like... I, it just something happened. and But he's not held in any kind of high regard. You say his name and people go, ha Superman, or maybe The Entity, which is yeah. another movie that he made. Like, I, I think he's clearly, like, you know, he's not a visionary director. He's, he's not... I, well, he, he's made some good movies, but he's clearly not, like... He's not on the level of, like, a Martin Scorsese or somebody. No, he isn't. But at the same time he's like clearly a very competent director and he was very passionate and had a very individual style about the films that he made like the icarus files is directed in what's called a wide angle style he had like a wide angle trilogy where he was looking for like specific crazy angles that he could use yeah to make it more interesting and that's something that i usually don't associate with like a journeyman who's like just shoot it whichever way we can right i'll tell you my favorite part of my five wives i've told this to you already <laughs> the uh, rodney dangerfield yeah uh, rodney dangerfield plays a uh, this is from like the 2000s okay mm. this is late period dangerfield <laughs> like on the doors of death dangerfield yeah like the self-medicating try not to slit his wrist dangerfield uh he's he plays a uh, trump-like real estate mogul and the opening scene is this montage of all the buildings he's built he's like i'm the biggest developer in new york i erected a building on park avenue i erected a building on central park west i got erections all over this town Ugh. Terrible. Did you laugh like profusely? (laughs) No. Even when I was like 10 years old watching that, (laughs) it it was not funny. My Five Wives, though, has an amazing cast. It has Dangerfield. It has Andrew Dice Clay, John Biner, uh, Molly Shannon, uh, John Pinote, I think, that fat comedian. I'm I'm not making this in My Five Wives. (laughs) Can we do a Dangerfield episode? No. When it comes to film biographies, people like Sidney J. Fury, I find the most interesting. Forget the famous people, right? I want to read a biography of Michael Winner or Joseph Cotton, where you're like, what? Like, what on the outskirts of things was going on? Yeah. Do you, like, have any particular, like, film biographies you really like? Oh, I mean, you know, my taste in biographies is inevitably going to be colored by, like, you know, my taste in filmmakers. So, you know, I like like Simon Simon Callow's Orson Welles biographies. I like... um, 
Sean Levy's book about Jerry Lewis, and I and you know sadly out of print. Sadly out of print. It's great though, and uh, uh, Richard Brody's book about Jean Luc Godard. Okay. A- everything is cinema. Right, that's the one that feels like you're reading every meal Godard had. I think the best biography I've ever read, though, it's not quite a film biography, but it's like sort of a film biography. It's Nick Tosh's book about Dean Martin, which is sort of like it's almost like a prose poem. Uh, you know, because there came a point halfway through his life when Dean Martin basically stopped caring, and the whole book. The whole second half of the book, it's almost like written from his point of view. Wow. Yeah, it's an amazing book. I mean, if we're talking about film biographies, I have to mention one of my favorites as well, which I think we've probably talked about on this podcast, which is um, Andy Milligan's oh, sorry. biography. Yes, I'm glad you raised that. That's maybe my favorite film biography. What is it called? It's like, uh, uh, the Ghastly One. And Andy Milligan is a director that made trash like, he's like sub Ed Wood, but yeah. but it's also like imagine if like somebody who's like not even as good as Ed Wood had like the passion of Tennessee Williams to quote Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> yeah. uh, like his movies are like just so loud and angry and also totally inept. And he would do things like he's he has a movie called Bloodthirsty Butchers, which is his version of a Sweeney Todd uh, story. But it's shot on like Staten Island for no money, so it's this this shitty attempt at a period piece. He loves doing period pieces. Yeah, there's a movie called um, "The Rats Are Coming, The Werewolves Are Here." Unwatchable. Which is literally <laughs> people just yelling at each other for ninety minutes. I defy you, a werewolf to be seen. I defy you to sit through that movie. It's so <laughs> painful. But yeah, that Andy. The thing about Andy Milligan, it the book has a quote from John Waters on the back that I think is very. Uh, uh, very apt he says the book raises the question can somebody be untalented and also a genius so like andy milligan did all this like insane uh, experimental theater when he was younger like uh he was kind of tangential to the warhol scene he he did this crazy uh, crazy experimental theater and you know he filled his movies with so much of himself and his like anger at his mother uh he clearly had something i don't know if it's talent but he had passion certainly. he definitely had passion and yeah the book is an amazing kind of like document of just the scene that he was in and yeah that one is very easily available as well you yeah. can order off amazon or something i think the dino book is as well yeah but the problem with some books like the Sidney J. Fury one is that it is prohibitively expensive. It's like seventy dollars yeah. if you want to buy it. Yeah. Um, well, if you live in Toronto, your local library has it. That's where I got oh, it. Oh, nice. Or if you're some kind of eccentric millionaire, <laughs> buy a bunch of copies and share them with support cinema club listeners. Yes. So those are the three books that we recommend. And see Sidney J. Fury movies early in his career. See Dean Martin movies and read the biography. Eh, no, just no, read the book. Really. <laughs> and do not watch any Andy Milligan movies. Well, maybe one or two. Get a taste for it. Watch Bloodthirsty Butchers and uh, Flesh Pot on 42nd Street is pretty good.